This episode, we're speaking with Matt Johnson and Prince Kuman. Matt is a professor, researcher, and writer specializing in the application of neuroscience and psychology to the business world. Prince is an experienced marketer with great experience also on especially applying behavioral science to marketing. And when you put them in the blender, <laughs> you get this duo of expertise in all things payroll science and marketing, which they've also put into their recent book, Blindsights, The Mostly Hidden Ways Why Marketing Reshapes Our Brain. Read it if you're a marketer or someone being taken advantage of by marketers, though you might be reading it for very different reasons. <laughs> exactly. So, and in this episode, we talk about what the heck Blindsight is in the first place and what it has to do with decision-making. And then we, we delve deep into the ethics around using behavioral science for good and, you know, for less obviously good marketing purposes as well. And, and then how to solve the problem of tech addiction. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Matt and Prince, welcome to the Behavioral Design Podcast. Hey, good to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we're very excited to have you here. Yeah, me and Aline has been covering, you know, your book and uh, been really excited to really dig into some of the things you, you have in the book. That's right. We've been counting down the days till we could put you on the spot. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. No, we're, we're looking forward to it. We, we love being on the spot. So, yeah. Consider no. us enjoying the hot seat. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's get to it. So uh, let's start a little bit easy. So give you guys some softball questions to get you warmed up. Maybe each of you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, I guess the two questions I want to have answered is what made you get started in what you do? And maybe talk a little bit about what you guys do, because you do things together. But also, I would say you guys cover a little bit different parts of the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely well said. So, yeah. So my, myself, personally, I, I come from the uh, academic space and that's my orientation to neuromarketing, consumer neuroscience. So my PhD was in cognitive neurosciences where I studied uh, the neural basis of language learning and, and some forays into uh, the neural basis of uh, perception as well. So my mid-20s was basically labs and libraries and, and I'm just very, very driven by uh, curiosity. I think humans are the most fascinating possible thing that we can study. We're just endlessly complex, strange, paradoxical creatures. And now, especially with the advent of neuroimaging technology, you get to take such a, a direct look into that. So I was able to, to use technologies like EEG and fMRI, put them into, uh, put people into scanners and eavesdrop on their brain as certain processes were unfolding. And that was essentially my, my mid-20s. When I graduated, I, I had been in labs and libraries for so long, I wanted to do something completely different. And so I, I moved to Shanghai, China, where I did uh, business consulting work for uh, a few years. And this is really where I saw this rich intersection between business and neuroscience, um, especially within uh, areas having to do with consumer behavior and sort of consumer facing aspects of, of business. Um, and that was when I came back to the States, I uh, got back in touch with uh, Prince and uh, he, he comes to the same sort of questions and same curiosities, but from a totally different uh, angle. Uh, Prince, you want to say a few words about uh, yourself and your journey? Yeah, uh, the contrast is great because Matt was, uh, you know, he was, he spent whatever, 10 plus years in, in, in research and understanding human behavior while I was A-B testing my way to understanding consumer behavior. And, and I mean, obviously the four of us know A-B testing is only skin deep and we can get into that a lot later on, but 
the point I'm trying to make is I spent my weekends reading as many abstracts as possible before pulling my hair out and as many um, neuroscience and, and, uh, and psychology books as, as much as I could because I was lucky enough to be a director of marketing early on in my career for multiple startups. And what I did was read as much neuroscience as I could, come up with tests, not just A-B tests, and then test my way on Monday, on Tuesday, and see what works and what didn't work. So I did that for over a decade, and, and that's my background. So you know, I started my first company when I was an undergrad at UC San Diego, started my second company. Um, I've failed significantly more often than I've succeeded, uh, but every time the entire process, neuro, neuroscience and neuromarketing has sort of been my foundation as a marketing leader. And then, you know, Matt and I bumped heads back in San Francisco 10-ish years later after we met. And, and that's where the book idea and all these all these ideas came to fruition. And, and fast forward today, all these ideas are actually real things we can touch and, 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 and play with. So he's the Kobe to my shack. It's <laughs> beautiful how it all just came together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we, we ultimately realized that you know, neuroscientists and marketers are, are fundamentally interested in the same questions, which is how do we understand and predict human behavior? And, you know, the sciences are, are driven by curiosity, driven to find truth, even if it's a very, you know, narrow, highly nuanced truth, but truth is, is sort of the end goal. Marketing, obviously, you want to be bounded by, you know, theory, but it's, it's fundamentally about action. So is it, do I have enough information to make an actionable decision? So really interested in the same types of questions fundamentally, but very different orientations and very different aims. Awesome. So you mentioned that you came together and, and started working on this book together. And I want to kind of jump into that and really talk about some of the themes that came out of it. And one thing, you know, I, where better to start than the title itself, right? You have this uh, pretty incredible metaphor of blindsight, which of course is the the ability for some legally blind people to actually see without their conscious awareness. So they don't believe they can see when, when pushed, they'll say, no, I'm blind. There's nothing there. Right. But um, if they have to sort of almost forced to guess, they actually can see something, some version of what's in front of them. And so I'd love you to talk a little bit about how this phenomenon translates to consumer behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a really great description of the the neuropsychological case. So, yeah, it's it's somebody who they they feel subjectively their own internal experience is is total complete darkness. You bring them into a lab and you you have them do you know several experiments having to do with with you know visual recognition, and they're almost like insulted by it. They're like, "Why are you trying to have me <laughs> guess how many you know lights are flickering on the screen? I'm blind." Um, but you have them guess and you just encourage them to guess, just humor me with something. And their, their guesses are actually, you know, significantly above chance. There's some experiments showing that if you, you know, toss you know, a baseball in the general vicinity of a, a person with blindsight, they'll, they'll snag it out of midair. And when asked, you know, how did you do this? They, they you know, really have no idea. And uh, the reason for this, this very strange sort of state has to do with the complexity of the brain's visual system that we have all of these different streams for conscious vision, but we actually have do have some residual visual pathways which which don't necessarily broach consciousness, but nonetheless can impact our behaviors, uh, emotions, and actions. And and that's what's preserved in individual blindsight. The conscious pathways are damaged. The unconscious pathways are preserved. And this actually, I think, is is an interesting way to sort of think of ourselves in the consumer world. And so when when Prince and I were sort of 
in our in our nerding out sessions about the, all these interesting interactions between neuroscience and marketing, you know, this is one of the things that that sort of Prince saw as having a clear analog in the consumer world. Uh, Prince, you want to dive into that? Yeah, I mean, we we thought it was a, a, a beautiful analogous condition because what is marketing if not that little space that you can't truly fully see as often, or at least realize the the breadth or the weight of it? Because marketing, I would argue sits between that gap of objectivity and subjectivity, right? And, and it sits in the gap of what you are objectively taking in, but also what you are not aware of uh, what you're taking in. And, and that goes down to not just branding and copywriting, and we can go down to email subject lines. There's so many different ways that that plays out, but that sort of is where this whole thing starts. So that's why Matt and I used Blindsight not only as a book title, but also it is kind of novel. Like most people don't know about the Blindsight condition, let alone how directly it correlates or at least symbolically correlates to what marketing does in the brain. So that's why Matt and I love that. Yeah, it's really interesting. How how much do you think you can sort of safely extend the metaphor to what well, let's just say, you know, in the blind sight case, right, as as much as you try to teach people that you, you can actually see it's there, a lot of what you're doing is saying, look at all of these forces that are influencing your consumer behavior are we actually able to take that education and and all of that information and then apply it to our own lives, you know, go out and see a billboard or whatever ad comes up for, for us when we're watching YouTube videos, are we able to say, Oh, here's that. (laughs) This is what, uh, what Matt and Prince were talking about here. Or are we still, you know, subjectively blind to that information, even though we've been taught about it in this other context? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, there's a couple of different ways to, to look at it. I mean, I think one of the goals of the book is to provide consumers, which is all of us, we're all consumers with sort of a deeper understanding of the forces that shape the consumer world, both at a strategic level for what markets are trying to do, and also at sort of a very fine-tuned tactical level. So you're able to see sort of some of the biases and heuristics that that brands are sort of tapping into and, and why they sort of feel sometimes so appealing. It, it's sort of one of those things where we can know all these things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't, we don't want to engage with it. And I think you know, all of us in behavioral economics, you know, see see that as well, that, you know, as much as we study and know the theoretical foundations of our own, you know, biases and, and fallibilities, you know, certain, and I know I have my own certain, you know, patterns and, and heuristics and, and, you know, trickery, you just sort of fall into just naturally, regardless of how much you know about it. Um, but I think another goal of the book was really just trying to give all of us consumers sort of a deeper appreciation for the consumer world uh, that so much thought and energy and human ingenuity went into these brands and products. And I think most of us don't really appreciate that. We have, you know, products that, that come into our lives and leave our lives. We never think about, you know, all of the, you know, sort of interesting strategy and, and tactics and sort of intuitive neuroscience that was baked into these experiences that we have. And I think once we, we sort of gain that, that understanding, not only are we better equipped to, you know, avoid certain tactics and, and spend in a way that's more aligned with our long-term goals, but we just appreciate, uh, I think the consumer world is infused with a sort of a deeper sense of meaning once we appreciate all of the, the work that went into it. And, you know, for me, um, I'll, I'll do my best to answer your question directly as well. I mean, I think, yes, the blindside analogy actually goes a lot further than you might think as a, as a hook or a chapter, because for many reasons, I'm sure we'll get into it. I think uh, to answer your latter question, though, um, it's weird being a marketer who understands neuroscience, right? So, <laughs> um, so for me, it's always 
playing both sides of the proverbial field, right? As a marketer, I the biggest compliment you can give me is that was a great piece of content or that was amazing experience or, you know, if I'm a product manager, compliment my product. I, as a marketer, and I'm now I'm not alone, love creating epic products or brand experiences, right? That's what drives me. But then as a consumer, I love fighting over Canon versus Nikon versus Sony for cameras or Android versus Apple. Like we have our favorite teams and there isn't inherently anything harmful about that. If you feel like you cannot convince Matt that Nike is not the best sportswear company in the world, right? Never mind. <laughs> Probably comes from the same factories as Adidas. But nonetheless, as consumers, we love that. So I've always had this foot on each 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 world and I struggled with coming to terms with it, especially in the recent years, right? Especially in, um, you know, the the convergence of, of, of tech and behavior science. And I'm sure you guys can ask about that later. But nonetheless, this was my way of opening up everything that I had researched personally, everything that Matt and I worked on together and everything that I had tested, everything there is proof that other brands are testing and put it out there because it is, some will say, is it a marketing book? We get this question all the time, like, yeah, technically it is, right? Some will say, is it a self-help book? And I was like, well, technically it is. What is self-help? Mm-hmm. Not discovering, you know, uh, but we're not trying to go down that route directly. But man, if you were to say, I read Blind Sight and I understand myself better, holy shit, that is an amazing compliment to Matt and I, right? And I think deep down inside, what really drives us to read more and more nonfiction books, right? You're probably trying to unearth something about your own self a bit. So I think there's that. Um, and to go back to your initial question, yeah, there there are some systems you can put into place if you do want to understand your behavior and create a system that helps you, I guess, uh, calibrate yourself in a world that is going to have an impact on your subconscious and your conscious behavior. And, and you can go into the systems if you'd like, but there are ways, right? You can use this stuff for your own advantage. Yeah, let's go there. Let's go a little bit deeper there. I think because uh, we're touching upon something that's obviously I think all of us care a lot about, which is behavioral science for good. You can call it or kind of the ethical side of applying behavioral science or neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And obviously the stated goal with the book is to inform consumers to make them more aware of kind of the marketer's toolbox or tactics that's used, kind of the, again, going back to the Bindsight uh, example or metaphor. But do you worry that marketers themselves could use the book as kind of this how-to manual for manipulating and taking advantage of consumers? Um, I think, I'll, I'll take a crack at this first, Matt, and jump in whenever you'd like. I think, uh, I think look, when Cialdini wrote Influence, he probably wrote it for the same reasons as we did. Hey, this is as much as I know about influence and persuasion. I want this written for the average person who wants to read a nonfiction book about the science of persuasion and influence. Plain and simple. Lay people read it, but so did marketers. And some marketers use it for good, some use it for bad, whatever that means. And Matt and I firmly believe that the response to shady marketing isn't no marketing, right? The response to bad marketing isn't no marketing. The response to bad marketing is better marketing. And I think the first step is knowledge is educating consumers. Now to go back to to your question, Sam, I think that we've seen this often, right? There's innovation and then the public catches up to whatever they lost in that chase of innovation and then public policy somewhere down here, way down here. Um, And eventually public policy catches up and then there's more innovation and then there's more exploitation or taking and, 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 and that's the cycle. 
And I think we are nearing the beginning of the end of that version, right? Um, Matt and I know we're never going to get a job at Facebook. We've talked so much shit about Facebook in this book. We're not going to get a job at Facebook, and I'm okay with that. But I, but I do think that there is a balance, and I think it's inevitable if you exploit the consumer too much using behavior science, you will be found. Maybe that's hopeful thinking. So there, there's a mixture of it in there. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's well said. I think one of the goals of the book is is to really to highlight the power that the consumer has in in this value exchange. It's one of the the sort of frameworks that we employ in the book is this idea of of trading value. That really, if we're trying to distill marketing and all of its various forms, various industries, nonprofit, for profit, publicly traded, privately owned, um, it really is trading value. That you know the, the the brand has something of value to you, and you deliver something of value in in you know in, to to transact on that. And in sort of an idealized version of that, it's you know the classic. Hey, these are some you know really great shoes that are going to enhance my life. You want to charge me one hundred and ten dollars for it? I feel that's a, that's a fair price, and I'm going to make that exchange. And as the consumer world has gotten more and more and more digital. The value exchange is is still there, but the the exact sort of formulations of the transaction have gotten more and more obscured. And so we don't know what's being extracted from us in terms of value. Money is one thing, but now it's data, now it's time, now it's attention, uh, now it's all these things. There's no such thing as a, a free lunch, and as, as Print says, there's no such thing as a free app, right? So you're you're paying with your time, you're paying with data, you're paying with attention, you're paying with other things that are ultimately of value to you that you're getting in response to this experience. And so one of the goals of the book is really to highlight that value exchange in all types of of you know consumer uh, circumstances and. For the consumer to be empowered to be sort of an equal partner, an equal partner in this this value exchange. That if you you know are, are getting some sort of unfair exchange from the standpoint of your your you know transactional partner, the brand, then you can go to another brand, and that's what antitrust laws are for, which maintain these exchanges in sort of a fair and equitable way. So that was definitely one goal of the book is to sort of highlight this value exchange talk about its various formulations and give the consumer a, a bit more power to understand, you know, why it is they get involved in these exchanges and, and really the power they have to, to shape them. Do you think that greater transparency from companies and saying this is the exchange that we're making that would solve the problem or, or get us closer to solving the problem or how close does that, how much does that help if we just knew? I love that question. I mean, we sort of, dove into that initially. We thought, well, transparency got to be part of the equation that, that helps find a ethical middle ground. Transparency is part of it, but I think um, what we what we found, and, and Matt can go more in, into more details into the research itself if you guys would like, but what we found is autonomy. And it's, and it's a, a, what part of the consumer's autonomy are you infringing upon? And then is that a fair infringement? Right. So um, and, and you can sort of extrapolate that and apply that to what is the public comfortable with. Matt, you want to talk about that bit? Yeah, the, the transparency bit is, is super interesting. And there's some research indicating that greater algorithmic transparency better informs consumers and, and leads them to make more deliberative decisions about these things. But then there's other research showing that transparency has the opposite effect especially transparency when it comes to certain types of nudges that are employed in, in a, a user interface. 
Um, so the transparency piece is, is definitely a, a mixed bag there for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're kind of getting into marketing ethics uh, at this point, which is, is great. I thought we were going to get there. I didn't think we were going to get there so so quickly. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> we dive right in. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's an area that, that Prince and I are, are super passionate about. And I mean, really approaches to marketing ethics, they, they tend to coalesce around sort of a single ethical variable. So there's certain camps that are just very, very sort of consequentialist. And all that matters is the consequence. Is the the nudge good? Does it does it lead to positive consequences, generally speaking, for consumers or negative consequences for consumers in society? We'll let the consequences decide that. Then there's other camps which which focus much more on sort of like a, a Kantian deontological standpoint, which really look at sort of a, a more rule-based system and, and look at things like consumer autonomy, for example. So were, does the, was the consumer free to choose given the decision architecture which was set up, regardless of the consequences, uh, liberty and, and sort of freedom and autonomy, that is, you know, it's a very sort of American value, but it's a very sort of, you know, important part to maintain in this, this sort of decision architecture and as an important variable for marketing ethics generally. And so long story short, some of the research that we're working on right now is, is trying to develop a framework which doesn't focus necessarily on a single variable, but looks at, at sort of boundary conditions for these variables. So clearly, consequences are important, right? That's why we don't let anybody sell bazookas, even in a, a very gun-friendly society like America is, and that's a whole other conversation. Uh, there's certain things that we don't let the consumers make their own choices about, and that's probably a very, very good thing. Um, so there's clear boundary conditions there. But I think there's also boundary conditions when it comes to autonomy, that if we have guaranteed, you know, positive consequences, would it ever be okay to design a decision architecture in such a way where it is so finely tuned to our individual psychologies uh, where it's guaranteed to produce a certain effect, whereas you, you know, head on this website and you're guaranteed to, you know, do this desired behavior. And I'm not sure we'd, we'd also want to live in a world in which all of these things were decided a priori via sort of a, a another consequentialist framework. And some of the research we've done just on consumer intuitions about this has uh, confirmed that, that people do value their own autonomy and they, they do want to exercise their own deliberative capacities. And that is in turn very important for a society to have. It's, it's good for us to hone our deliberative capacities and be able to make judgments about these things but also that people value consequences very highly as well. And it's, it's very, very early. So far, consequences seems to be more valued than autonomy, but both, both seem to be important. And so our, our job now is trying to compose these into sort of a workable framework. Yeah, super interesting. So what, kind of what you're talking about is the idea of, okay, thinking about obviously the means to the end or kind of the end itself. So are we trying to think about, okay, well, we're going to try to get people to exercise. So that's like kind of a, in, no, in most metrics, a good end. And then with that end in mind, do we care at all about the means we use to encourage people to get there or persuade people to, to get there? And then, so that's like one somewhat of debate or part of this debate. And another one is how to evaluate the ends, like how to evaluate if something is good or bad. I don't know which one of those two do you find most interesting to kind of cover in terms of, yeah. I'll take a crack at it. I think... I think we're, it's interesting that we're talking about the application of behavior science to marketing and, and what is and isn't ethical and try to come up with a framework there. But I think 
to reframe that, we can use behavior science itself and what the four of us know about it to reapproach marketing ethics. So foundationally, and I'll speak for the U.S., and I'm sure it's not untrue elsewhere as well, is ethics has been more or less don't break the law or do whatever you can without breaking the law, right? And when it comes down to decision-making, consumer decision-making, it's been, it, it can be summarized as the following. I did not make you take out your wallet, take out your credit card and pay. I did not make you click the buy button. Hence, I'm not responsible as long as I did not break any laws to get you there, right? I'll let Matt talk about the, uh, the, consequence, the consequential uh, version of, of, of your two scenarios. But I, I want to lay this up for Matt is, is, is the example of a child at a candy store at eye level candy. And I, and I think that speaks to Matt and my personal philosophy that we're trying to unearth and, and, and find either validate or falsify is the autonomy angle. I think that is a clear violation of autonomy. A child does not have uh, matured cognitive functions to make that decision, right? In the same way that you could you could easily pull out bipolar or depressed people on Facebook and then market them candy, market them a vape, market them a religion, right? And I would argue that is also imposing upon someone's autonomy, right? So, so to me, the second piece is, 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 is at least there's some lines that are a little bit easier. So yes, of course, it's, it's not cool to uh, advertise to kids, right? Tell that to Nickelodeon, right? Tell that to... Some, but there is that. I think the autonomy angle helps. Uh, the consequentialist angle, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it you know, speaks again to this idea of, of boundary conditions. And uh, I think the, the consequences are, are certainly important, especially at a societal level. It's sort of a, a large enough scale. But, but I do think it, it really makes the most difference. What is the actual process by which these decisions are made? If, you know, buying, let's take the, the buying candy example. So you're, you're in the checkout aisle and you buy the candy. That decision to, to buy the candy in that moment could be preceded by a totally different cognitive state. You could be, you know, totally glucose depleted. It was, you know, positioned right at the eye level. And, uh, you know, you know you're going to regret it later, but you just can't muster up the, you know, the cognitive control to resist that prepotent response. So therefore, you buy the candy, you shove it in your face, and you almost regret it, you know, before you're able to finish it. Or, you know, you could be at the checkout aisle and you could reflect on your, uh, you know, your goals and reflect on, you know, the joys of, of you know, a little bit of hedonism here and there and, and treat yourself and, and buy that candy and consume that candy knowing that, yeah, it might take you slightly away from some of your, you know, life goals, but the enjoyment of this candy is, is worth it in the long run. So therefore it's a much more reflective decision. And so I think understanding the, the psychological predicates to a given behavior is, is very, very important. And, and really that's what needs to be designed for. I don't think we can say, that a given decision architecture or, or, you know, given, you know, marketing ethic or marketing tactic is ethical or not, if we don't understand the psychology that produced that behavior. So in that sense, with, with clear exceptions, I think any given action can be, any given consumer action can be ethical if the, uh, the, the predicates to that action were autonomous. The last thing I want to say about um, transparency is that I do think that it's it's extremely important, especially in the digital world where it can be so obscurantist. 
that having basic transparency about, you know, data tracking and, you know, data monitoring and, you know, are we going to sell your data? Are we going to target you with advertising? That, that stuff's important. And, and I think, you know, that that's clearly, you know, worth there, there being some adjudication there uh, in terms of guaranteeing that for consumers. But I do think there's lots of areas where, again, in terms of boundary conditions, where we wouldn't want necessarily full transparency over all types of consumer interactions. You know, take, for example, branded experiences or the enjoyment of the, the enjoyment that we derive from a, a given brand. You wouldn't want Harley Davidson to come out and be like, we know that you're attracted to Harley Davidson because it taps into your, you know, your social identity of the rebel and your intrinsic motivation to be a, <laughs> you know, a free spirit American. You know, that kind of there should be a little bit of magic there. Uh, and I think that should be allowed and that what that's what makes, you know, amazing branded experiences and, and brand interactions with consumers so incredible. And so I do think there's clear boundary conditions when it comes to transparency as well. Yeah, you can sort of imagine a world where you have little disclaimers everywhere you go. You walk into a store and it says, we're playing classical because <laughs> we think you'll spend more money or totally. this is, the store smells like lavender because, you know, and so on. It just it doesn't seem like a very realistic reality. Totally. Yeah. And of course, we see consumers making really bad choices sometimes when they have full autonomy, right? With this, we see, you know, people eating all the wrong foods and not getting enough physical activity and not taking their prescribed medications, all of these sort of, you know, chronic health issues and, you know, financial as well. Lots of poor decision making in, in that realm. One of these problems that you sort of touch upon in your book is that of tech addiction. So uh, people who are using social media and so on, this whole digital landscape is really sort of built on the idea of uh, in order to um, make any sort of profit as a digital platform, um, it relies on consumers being addicted to your product, you know, using it sort of engagement for the sake of engagement rather than, you know, some ultimately, you know, good for them outcome, you know, caring about their well-being. And I think this is this is really an incentive misalignment problem. And, you know, since we're since we're talking about solutions, I'd love to know what your thoughts are around, you know, what we can do here, given that consumers aren't willing to pay for Facebook, right? They're not they're not gonna, you know, go from free to paid. Regulators, like you were saying, Prince, are so far behind that it's that that's probably not going to be, you know, the silver bullet any day soon. And there really isn't a business model that's set up to to have people, uh, you know, pay for <laughs> pay for products so that they don't have to, you know, give in to these you know sort of soul sucking models of addiction and, uh, you know, selling their data essentially without paying anything. So what do you think? Are, are there any any paths towards fixing this problem? It, can we align the incentives and, and uh, get rid of get rid of this tech addiction problem? There is. And, and I think this strangely also correlates with what Sam said earlier. So how do you get rid of the tech addiction problem? And uh, oh man, well, for, for one, consumers need to hold themselves responsible, right? It is, and this goes back to, yes, Europe is better at public policy and shoot me for saying this, but America is better at innovation because they don't think about public policy until it's too late. And then they think about public policy and then we retract and we break things down. But there is an inverse relationship between over-regulating something and the amount of innovations that come out of it, right? Open up your apps, your phones right now and see how many apps you're using that are made in Britain. Not a lot, right? Made in France, 
I'm not trying to start a national war here or anything like that. But but the point is the U.S. is not good at public policy, but they are good at innovation. But the problem, the, the downside of innovation is that it moves faster than the consumers and certainly more than the public policy. But then when consumers catch up to it is when you actually find a, a, a fair balance, right? So although Facebook might not go back to charge, let people charge by the month, but the fact that we are having this conversation now, the fact that there are documentaries coming out every single year, the fact that the public opinion, uh, there's a chink in the armor of attention economy products. I think that is the start of that cycle that inevitably happens. And I think consumers need to uh, be more active in, in their choice, right? And I think if one thing we've seen over the last few years is a lack of trust in governments to do what they're supposed to do. And in this context, we're talking about governments uh, reining in big tech. And I think the social addiction things, consumers need to be held responsible as well, because ultimately we don't want to pay for anything. Yeah. Right. But, but, but contrary to what you were saying, Lynn, there are signs of, uh, of VCs backing companies that are no longer relying on the attention economy. Right. We've seen that, with Signal and Telegram. We've seen that with Brave Browser. We've seen that with Medium. Medium went out of their way not to be an ad tech company. And Medium went out of their way saying good content shouldn't be free. And they stake the reputation on it. And we're seeing stuff like Patreon, who's taking, you know, uh, YouTube is simply a top of the funnel thing now, where if you really want to know my really amazing content, actually talk to me, subscribe to my Patreon. And that is a, a, a sort of it's born out of this need. And I think we will see more products. But I think but I think the cycle, the second uh, part of this innovation, consumers catch up to what they actually lost in this innovation. That piece is starting now. And, and we are seeing some products come out that affect that. And if you look at Google's revenue over the years, I forget how many years ago, but it was it was within the last five years, it was over 90 percent was ad tech products. Right. AdWords. Right now, it's 82% of the revenue. So even for Google, the revenue is coming down. And you have the company, Apple, publicly doing an entire uh, destruction <laughs> of, of, of free ad tech. They don't, they don't call names out, but nonetheless. So when you have companies like that, that, although they're not launching a product per se, but they are taking a line in educating consumers, maybe not as intensely as Matt and I or other people write books about it, but nonetheless a PR campaign and a billboard that says privacy, Apple <laughs> iPhone, right? That's going to get people to think more about that, right? So, so, um, and you are no longer just paying for the Apple ecosystem and, and blah, blah, blah. Now you're paying $1,200 for an iPhone versus Google Pixel phone because your iPhone is more private and it's not based on a company that gets 82% of the revenue on that tech. What Apple is doing about privacy now is what Nike did about social causes a couple of years ago when they, when they sponsored Colin Kaepernick. Nike, Nike saw this coming. They took a very well-calculated bet and planted their flag going, we are the do-good company. We care about social change. And now everyone is trying to do that. And consumers see straight through it, right? Thoughts and prayers from a company, boilerplate doesn't work. And I think Apple did the same thing with privacy today. And I'm willing to bet lots of companies are going to try to come out and be like, we're doing well with privacy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think all those, I don't know, that was like a very convoluted way of answering, but I think there is hope there are signs objectively that we're moving in that way as consumers and as product makers. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you need a big leader to sort of step up and uh, provide a good example. Um, and then, you know, other new entrants, startups that are doing innovative things in the space and that coupled with 
you know, really uh, you know, demand from consumers putting pressure on the Googles and the Facebooks um, to actually change. And maybe that's what's going to bring about the new world <laughs> of addictionless tech. Yeah, super interesting. So I guess it's time for underrated or overrated. What do you think, Ellen? I'm very pro this decision. Awesome. So uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this particular segment of the show, but uh, we try to switch it up towards the end and have a little bit of a quick fire round of questions, which we call the underrated versus overrated. And pretty much the idea is we will list a couple of things and ask you guys to say if you think it's underrated, correctly rated, or overrated. Got it. So pretty straightforward. All set? All ready? All right. Here we go. The marshmallow test. I would say it is correctly rated. I think uh, there there was the initial you know experiment back in the day, and everyone was all excited about it. There was some some rebuts to to that correctly that that showed that it was more about socioeconomics and this and that, and not about impulse control. And there was some follow up research that I think you know validated the original findings to a certain extent. So I think there's you know a healthy bit of skepticism about it, which should exist for most of, of these findings that that aren't sort of a genuine phenomena. So I think it's it's you know. It's 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 calibrated. Insufficiently adjusted over time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Subliminal soft drink ads. Mm, overrated. Subliminal doesn't work yeah. often. Subliminal can have enough of an impact to, to nudge your behavior. So overrated. Yeah, for sure I'd for say me. I'd say overrated as well. I think there's yeah a lot of sort of excitement and and high emotions about these things, but their their effect sizes on the studies are, are really really small. I think all the emphasis on subliminal actually robs the power of midliminal, which is chapter 11 in blind sight, um, because midliminal is really the stuff that's hiding in plain sight that actually ends up nudging you quite a bit more than subliminal. And, and I think that is underrated. All right. How about default autoplay? So when you're at, when you get to the end of an episode, say on Netflix and you're, uh, you're automatically pushed into the next episode that's coming up. I think as, uh, as a measure of efficacy, it is undervalued. It is really a big reason why um, Netflix and, and YouTube have been able to get as many eyeballs on screens for that much longer. As long yeah, as they- absolutely. As as a as a tactic, it's it's super underutilized. Where it was pioneered, the, I mean, the stats are pretty clear. I, we cited in our book, but when YouTube implemented this, their time on site just shot through the roof. Netflix has used it to great effect. So tactically, I think there's there's no question about it. I think, yeah, from an ethics standpoint, it's it's probably not appreciated quite enough. Teaching via Zoom, underrated, overrated. That's tricky. Uh, just right, just right. Yeah. I think I think Zoom has forced me to be more creative while I'm while I'm playing professor. It has also helped me uh, get access to students in places and, and have bigger class sizes typically. Like we, our class sizes did not go bigger, but you know, theoretically, we're not limited to a physical space. Um, it did let me have immediate Zoom uh, little polls and conversation that you can't do in classes easily. And um, I think my students participate more in Zoom maybe the intimidation aspect of being in classes is minimized. So I think for those reasons, it's good. And obviously it's bad because I want my students next to each other and figure stuff out. So, but I, but I don't think it's all bad or all great. I think it's pretty fairly evaluated. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would agree there. I think if you would have told me, you know, 10 months ago that, you know, it's gonna be a pandemic and be teaching on zoom and it's going to go this well, I'd be like, that's, that's pretty good. Could have been about, could have been a lot worse. I think it's one of those things where once we have the opportunity to teach safely in person, 
it's going to be great. And uh, I'll, I'll appreciate the in-person experience that much more, but it, it does, it, it, you know, does a job and, and, you know, we should be grateful for it. Well, a last question for overrated, underrated choice, having choice. I think mm. it is it is rated. I think you <laughs> it's, it's whatever whatever middle one. Is that an option? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, lots of experiments showing that you know people want choice, they value choice, but too much choice, especially choices which which really strain our uh, our, our thinking, is bad. So yeah, I think choice is okay and involves it, it should should belong in that sort of Goldilocks zone. Yeah, same. I think consumer choice, I think more consumer choice in product and competition wise choice is great, right? If you want to turn that into abundance, yes, choice is undervalued. But when it comes to stuff like creativity and me taking layer options to come up with a solution or a creative anything, right? If I were to say you can only paint with your left hand in monotone colors, you'd probably come up with more creative stuff than if I gave you all of the colors and all of your hands or whatever. So I think in that sense, uh, choice is debilitating. So, because the coin falls on both sides, I uh, agree with Matt. I think it's, I think it's right in the middle. I have one for you guys. Ooh, Ooh. <laughs> turning, turning the, the tables. tables. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, this one's going to be more pop culture. Okay. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. Drake as a pop star, overrated, underrated, or average? Overrated. Who is Drake? He's fine. Perfect answer. Perfect oh, answer. Who is Drake? <laughs> Perfect answer. Oh, wow. Samuel dropped <laughs> okay. the mic. Okay. The, per- the perfect answer. Okay. That was practice round. This is the one that I, this is the one that I really wanted to answer. Kanye West. Overrated or underrated? Oh my God. So much more overrated than Drake. Drake is like such a cool guy <laughs> compared to Kanye. Ugh. Kanye. Oh. It's really sad as well because I uh, was actually probably my favorite albums was one of the earlier Connie once like late later registration or one of those mm. ones that came early. So it's quite sad to see. I think he was very underrated for a while and yeah. then he just kind of flipped. I, I think he was to far, far, far the opposite. We now. just didn't realize how crazy he was for a while. Right on. That's all I have. Cool. I appreciate that, Prince. Thanks for thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. I had to have some fun with you guys. Yeah. I do know who Drake is, by the way. But let the record show. Let the record I'm show. not sure what to believe. <laughs> your, your answer, your answer was still perfect. Your answer is still perfect. Anyway, yeah. last question: How would you guys apply behavioral science in your own lives? Obviously, with a book, you kind of have this idea. I guess you know, like we talked about that. Obviously, when you know these things, you see the world differently. So, writing this book, you obviously see the world differently than maybe a lot of people. So, given that, how do you live your own life, maybe differently to to other people? I. I'll give, I'll give one hack that I use constantly. I did it when we were writing this book. I did it before I got on this podcast. Um, it's the power of context. Um, Matt and I have a shared playlist that we listen to while we're working. So it's always that playlist. Um, Wait, do you listen to the same song at the same time? Or just this? Not this, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. So when we were writing the book, we created a, we created a playlist that is no words, but electronic music that is at a certain beats per minute and, and, and that thing. And obviously, if you, if you read Blindsight, if you haven't, please go buy it. Uh, if you read Blindsight, we talk about the power of context and memory and how that drives behavior. And, and anytime we need to sit down and write Blindsight, we only l- played music from the same playlist all the time. That's one. Um, I Wait, wait. My, before you, uh, before you move on, I have some questions about this. Uh, um, so <laughs> <it's>, 
I'm a music lover. So did you specifically choose electronic music because of like, oh, we're going to have more interesting ideas or the tempo of this is going to get us excited versus some other kind of music that might be more focus driven or? It started off when Matt and I listened to music, uh, worked on our own before we met up. We discovered that we listened to the same type of electronic music while we're in the zone. And eventually we're like, let's just converge it into a single playlist. Hope that answered your question. It wasn't that, oh, we went out of our way to pick electronic over over classical or whatever, hip-hop and drum and bass, whatever the hell. No. And then the other thing I do is before every podcast, I listen to uh, very specific songs <laughs> by very specific people. Two songs. And 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 Matt does as well. Um, and that's my way of getting in the zone. So, But it's all based on context, memory, and behavior and how that triggers certain parts of you. So that's how I... Life hack. Model. Are they Drake and Kanye? They are Jay Z and Jay Z and Kanye. Otis. The song is Otis. We listen to Otis before we go live on air or do conferences. We're gonna have to put this playlist in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah. How about you, Matt? What is your? Uh... Yeah, for me, I think one sort of insight which which comes up again and again is this idea of. Uh, counterfactual thinking uh, that when you you get into, you know, a certain task, if it's, you know, not ideal task, you're always sort of plagued by, oh, what could I be doing right now? How happier would I be if I was just this? Like, you know, kind of that that guessing game. And I think that th- there is evidence showing that that is, you know, really, really saps our happiness. And if we're just, you know, whatever it is that we're doing, even if it's not our most enjoyable thing, if it's changing a dirty diaper, which as a a youngish parent I've gotten to know all too well, you know, you just have to dedicate yourself fully to that task and, and not be plagued by the counterfactual. So I think that's been one of my big focuses is really just trying to uh, not let my mind wander to these hypothetical scenarios and uh, just, just you know, be, be more focused in the, in the moment, which sounds a bit cliche, but driven by the, the research on, on counterfactual thinking. It's great advice. Very cool. Great advice. Yeah. This was fun. We uh, covered yeah. quite a bit of both, I would say, right down in the weeds and quite over these complex topics. We could have kept it each for ourselves, but I think it's, it's been fun to go a little bit into the ethics side of things and, and everything in between. It, it's an ebb and flow, <laughs> you know? We went from, you know, philosophy of, of neuroscience and ethics to Kanye West. So only- <laughs> and everything in between. <laughs> and All good trajectories do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so really appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks also for your wonderful work and, and writing the book and buy it. I think it's a good book to, to check out. And I uh, really enjoyed reading it myself. So, so yeah. Oh, thank like you. One. Thank you. Sharon. Thank you. And thank you guys both so much for, for having us. Um, it's been, yeah, super pleasure just to kind of nerd out publicly for, for lack of better phrasing. Um, you know, it's something that we all sort of share in common. And I think we've, you know, our, our minds wander to the same questions and we have different perspectives on those things. So yeah, super interesting to just kind of explore these things with you guys. Yeah, thank you. I echo what Matt said. Thank you guys for having us. Thank you guys so much. And and, and if you don't mind, I just want to do one plug. It, obviously, Blindsight is on sale everywhere. Um, we also have a blog called popneuro.com. And lastly, we do uh, teach ethical applications of neuromarketing. We have the only... Um, world's first uh, neuromarketing certification course. It's a three-day intensive. Um, so if you're interested in any, any of that, please check out popneuro.com. Awesome. Thanks for Sweet. chatting with us. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, that's a wrap. 
Thanks for listening to the Behavioral Design Podcast from Habit Weekly and the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. Make sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like what we're doing here, don't forget to share it with a friend or colleague. Our fantastic show music is Murgatroyd by the wonderful Dave Pissarro. And big thanks to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another deep dive into all things behavioral design. Heavens to Murgatroyd. <laughs> Oh, Blow. Oh,